1 Corinthians 15, verses 1-11. to This is a key text. This is a central text of Scripture. I've pointed this out to you before, but let me remind you again. The Ten Commandments provide for us an outline of the whole of the law. The Lord's Prayer provides us with an outline of all lawful prayer. And 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1-11 through gives us a summary of the whole Gospel. Those three texts are key. They are central. They are places to go. They are heads of doctrine. They are centers of the network. They are hubs of doctrine. Know those texts. Know the Ten Commandments well. Know the Lord's Prayer well. And know this text well. The Shorter Catechism, the first 38 questions, is an effort to explain the Gospel. 39-81 through 81 explains the Ten Commandments. There's that other central text. And then you get to 82 through 107, and you have word, sacrament, prayer. And the prayer portion is focused on explaining the Lord's Prayer. So this is not only my opinion, but also it is the opinion of the Westminster Assembly about those other texts. And you will find in the Gospel texts that 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1-11 to are outsizedly cited as proof texts in the first 38 questions. So, this text... I titled this sermon, I Declare to You the Gospel. This fits after having gone through a great deal of church matters. The introduction of the text talks about knowledge. We get into epistemology, authority in general, unity based around the truth, and division from those who have wrong doctrine. And we talk about right and wrong honor, not having, giving honor unjustly to men, having wrong loyalties and not being unjustly separating from those who are less personable but more right. right? Those are the things that we take away from there. The section chapters 5 through 6 talk about church courts and civil courts and how we use them properly. Chapter 7 is all about marriage. Chapters 8 through 14 are about public order and food, two of my favorite topics. And so when we talk about food talks about food devoted to idols, don't eat it. Wages for officers, pay them. The Lord's table, use it carefully. Public order. Men and women have different haircuts and they put different things on their heads during public worship. Men, nothing. Women, a covering. Public order continues on with the gifts of the Spirit and how to use them well. talks about the need for two or three witnesses to speak, even when you have prophets. And deals with Men being the ones who speak in the public assembly and women not. And talks about how women shouldn't ask questions, but men being allowed to speak are able to ask questions. And so those things are laid out. We get now to chapter 15 and we deal with the gospel. Go to page 2 of the outline. We've already read the text, so I'll be going through it. Chapter 15, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand. The first part says, I declare unto you the gospel which I preach to you. So notice this. The gospel can be declared. It can be declared. The words are what the gospel is. Words. We need to emphasize words. We care about words. Words are what are used to communicate the information. We think in propositional form. God has given to us the word. He is the eternal word. I declare to you the gospel. It is preachable. 
It is readable. And it's being declared in the text. Notice also the idea that a declarative sentence is not commanded. A declarative sentence is not commanded. A declarative sentence tells you what is, or as a command tells you what to do. The gospel is news and promises. It is not commands. The gospel is news, words that can be communicated in writing and in spoken word. Now the gospel can be received. You can hear it, you can understand it, you can believe it. You can hear it without understanding. That happens to people I talk to more often than I'd like to admit. People can understand it without agreeing. Happens about as frequently. And people can agree. They can understand you and they can believe. Which I pray happens more often. The gospel can be received. can be heard, understood, believed. So, we think about this. God gives information. He gave it to the apostles. The apostles receive that information. They communicate that information. That information has been captured for us in the scriptures. The scriptures are delivered to us. We can receive that information. We can believe that information. We can then share that information. And others can receive. We can declare. And so there is nothing lost. It is not an attenuation. It doesn't disappear. It doesn't dissipate. It doesn't evaporate. It is preserved. It is maintained. Not a jot or tittle will pass away. This world will pass away, but not one marking of the scriptures will pass away. All of it will be preserved, and it will shape the world. The term gospel has three meanings, and my hope is that this is old hat to you. The word gospel can be used to refer to the whole counsel of God, everything in Scripture. It can be used to refer to just the New Testament, the New Covenant. It can be used to refer to the saving message, indicatives, declarative sentences, news, promises. The gospel is good news. It's a message. That's the narrow sense. And that's what Paul means when he says, I declare to you the gospel. He's talking about the narrow sense here. And so with the narrow sense, it's the saving message. There are special uses of the law in the narrow sense and special uses of the gospel. Now, when we get to the law, which is important, it helps us when we contrast them to understand the difference. So the word law is sometimes used in the Bible to refer to everything that God has said. Right? So you sometimes see the word gospel and it means just everything God's revealed. You see the word law and it means everything God's revealed. The second sense, right? you have the word gospel and it can mean the New Testament. The word law can be used to refer to the Old Testament. Put those side by side, nifty. You get the whole thing, put them together, law and gospel together, and you have the whole word of God. Now, when we get to the third sense of each, you have the gospel in the narrow sense is the news, the declarative sentences, the promises, the indicatives. The law in the third sense is the commandments, the imperatives. Do this. Okay, so law, gospel, distinction. This is an emphasis in Lutheran preaching, and it's an important background for us as Calvinists to not lose. Calvin did not disagree with Luther. 
of that law gospel distinction. There were points of disagreement. This was not one of them. You will find some people who claim to be Reformed who sometimes mock law gospel distinction as a Lutheran thing. Calvin very plainly thought that this was the jewel of what Luther had accomplished in recovering and broadly preaching law gospel distinction. The law condemns, the gospel saves. And so when we see these things, we need to realize that this is a central part of our Reformed heritage, and it does not distinguish us from broader evangelicalism or from evangelicalism. Sorry, or from Lutheranism. Rather, this is the shared heritage. When we talk about being evangelical, right? we, can, we are so accustomed to being frustrated with the broader evangelical church, sometimes we forget we are evangelicals. We are evangelicals. What does that mean? It means that we believe in the Trinity and the Incarnation and the solas. Okay? As evangelicals, we agree about the solas. The solas are markers to differentiate Protestants or evangelicals from Roman Catholics. And so we have the solas as markers to differentiate us. The Reformed are different from other evangelicals in that we are careful to communicate about covenant theology and we are careful to communicate about the second commandment and we are careful to communicate about the Sabbath and we are careful to maintain a specific law order for church government. Those are the things that help to distinguish us as reformed. Now we think about tulip and tulip is useful but Luther held to the same doctrines. If you don't believe that, go read The Bondage of the Will and tell me who you know that's a more thoroughgoing Calvinist than Martin Luther after you've read that. Now, the Lutherans would emphasize law-gospel distinction. Praise God. In the Reformed world, you might want to also emphasize the structure of the covenants covenant of works, and the covenant of grace. Adam represented us in the covenant of works. He failed. We are guilty by his work. In the covenant of grace, Christ represents us. We are innocent by his work. We are righteous by his work. And so there, the covenant of works shows us the law condemning Adam and us through him, condemning us more by our indwelling sin, condemning us more by our particular sins, and the covenant of grace, saving us by Christ's work. And now we partake more and more of all the benefits of the gospel because of what Christ has done. Law-gospel distinction is key to rightly dividing the word. So I want you to think the Ten Commandments and 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 to 11, the difference between these texts is so valuable for you to understand in order to be able to think, how do you rightly divide the word? These are two things. If you put them side by side, the difference between them will help you to rightly divide the word very well. Law, gospel, distinction. When you see a command, what is it? It's law. When you see news or a promise, what is it? It's gospel. 
law-gospel distinction. It's very important for you to be able to rightly interpret the word. Paul tells us in Galatians, by putting them side by side, that the covenant of works says, do this and live. The covenant of grace says, the just by faith shall live. So we have those, and we are to stand in the gospel, we are to continue to believe the gospel, to abide in it, to persevere in it, to endure in it. Is that something we do of our own power? It is not. In fact, it is one of the promises of the gospel. If you believe it today, God will preserve you, cause you to endure. He will make you abide. So the enduring in the faith is a promise for all those who do believe today. That gives you refreshment to know if you feel weary, He's going to uphold you. He will not let you go. So, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand. Now a lot of people would hear all the things I just said and think that I was minimizing the law. And yet, if you stick around for very long, you will become very frustrated with the amount of law that I preach at you. Probably not today. Maybe not tomorrow. But someday. Someday, you will become frustrated with the amount of commandments that get thrown at you. Verse 2. By which also you are saved. Which? What's that referring to? The gospel. The gospel saves. I thought it was God that saves. Yes. I thought it was grace that saves. Yes. I thought it was faith that saves. Yes. In different senses. The gospel saves as the formal cause of salvation. Sola Scriptura. We have the word from heaven that comes to us, and it is the form by which salvation comes to us. It comes to us in particular human languages, in particular word formations, so that propositions are communicated to the mind, so that the grace of God can take those things and illuminate us and cause us to believe them, so that we will have as the object of our faith the thing that those words are in reality, which is Christ. Because we have the mind of Christ by taking those words in. So we are saved by the gospel. If you hold fast that word which I preach to you, so there's the idea of believing it, If you take that hold fast part and make enduring into a condition of justification, you've taken the gospel and turned it into a commandment. If, however, we read this and realize that the condition is fulfilled by the work of the Holy Spirit to uphold us, then we realize anyone who believes it now is a person who's saved, and anyone who believes it now will be upheld. So, you're saved by the gospel, and if you hold fast that word, notice the gospel is defined there as a word, which I preached to you. Notice it can be preached. Unless you believed in vain. Some people will take that line when it says, unless you believed in vain, they'll say, some people could believe and then stop believing. That is not what it's saying. If you read on at all, you will find that what Paul says later on is, Believing in vain means believing things that are self-contradictory. We get to like chapter 15, verse 12, and you read on, and he spends the whole time arguing for the resurrection, saying, if you deny the resurrection, you deny the gospel, and therefore you're believing in vain because you're believing a self-contradictory thing. 
So if the gospel's false, then you're believing in vain. If the gospel's true, the belief is not in vain. This is not some statement about temporary faith. Anybody who believes the gospel today will believe it tomorrow. They will believe it forever. There is nobody who believes the gospel and then stops believing the gospel. By which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So you were saved by the gospel. If you hold fast, has to do with continuing to believe. And unless you believed in vain, we talked about that. So what I want to point out to you again at the bottom of the page, believing in vain is believing in meaningless or false word. God's word is infallible, but our understanding is not infallible. You need to test what you think is true. Compare it to the scriptures and see if it's coherent. See if what you think is coherent, compare it to the scriptures. Paul is about to show why systematic theology is so important in the rest of chapter 15. It helps us to avoid vain beliefs. We are to use the literal interpretation of the scripture, which means we look for the meaning contained in the words, not reading it woodenly without regard to the type of literature, but reading it according to its type of literature, looking for the proposition being communicated. So if it's a figure of speech, you understand how to convert that into literal language. Otherwise, you don't know what it means. If you see poetic words and it feels good, but you don't know what it means, guess what that's useful for? Nothing. You have to understand what the poetry means. You have to understand what the poetry means. And there's a lot of poetry in the Bible. There's a lot of poetry to convert into literal language for you to understand it. It must be grammatical. You have to read according to the grammar. If you just fudge over the grammar to make it mean what you want it to mean without paying attention to all of the jots and tittles, you are not trying to submit your mind to God. You are trying to make yourself God and make God say what you want. You have to deal with the details of language. Context. If you just make verses ignore the verses before them and after them, you are not trying to understand what God has said. You are trying to make God say what you want. A proof text without context is a pretext to say whatever you want. Don't do that. Understand the context so that when somebody calls you out and says, you're taking it out of context, you can go, actually, I'm not. Let's go look at it. It's a logical interpretation of Scripture, which means you're able to compare Scripture with Scripture from any other place, and it fits together. No part of Scripture contradicts itself. The Word of God cannot be broken. Page 3. So, in verse 2 we said, The Gospel saves us if you hold fast to the Word that was preached, unless you believe in vain, unless you're believing falsehood. 3a. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. Okay, so Paul delivered to the church in Corinth what Paul received from Christ. This reception is called the apostolic deposit. Christ gave words, he put it in the souls of the apostles, and he causes the Holy Spirit to bring it to remembrance, that they would inscripturate it, and that would be captured and maintained providentially for the church. That's the apostolic deposit. 
That is what they received. Eastern Orthodoxy in Rome, say the apostolic tradition maintained in the church or by the magisterium of the church or by the tradition of the church, right, that those are where the deposit is in its final form. Protestantism says the apostolic deposit is in the scriptures. So that's where we have the apostolic deposit. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. And then there's a nice little colon here in the English translation, which properly helps us to understand the stuff that follows is an explanation of what he received. That seems to support the Protestant position, that the apostolic deposit is being communicated right here. So the reception of the apostolic deposit by Paul. The teaching of Christ to the apostles was to be given to the church. The gospel, in the sense of the new covenant, right, the Remember since 2, right? we have whole counsel of God, and then we've got the new covenant, and then we've got very specifically the saving message. I'm talking about since 2. Okay, the gospel, in the sense of the new covenant, completes the full counsel of God given to man in the scriptures. So if you have the law, the Old Testament, and you have the gospel, the New Testament, that's the fullness. That's the whole counsel of God. And that's given. It's the capstone. It's a completion. There's no more needed. And he gave this. Paul delivered this to the church. Not as like the first thing. He didn't like bust in the doors and go, guys, we'll start writing things down and just talk. Right? He didn't do that. He, he, the most important thing. It's not the I delivered to you first of all as in the first thing he said. It's I delivered to you as of first importance that which I also received. So it's about importance and not order. So what is that? 3B. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Now when you see the words according to the Scriptures, this is communicating three things. One, the Scriptures predicted that Jesus Christ would die. Two, it teaches that he did in fact die. Three, it explains the meaning of his death. Not just he would die, not just he did die, but what does that mean? Why did he die? What did it accomplish? (coughs) Charles Hodge, in his commentary, by the way, looking for a good commentary, and you don't know where to start, just search if Charles Hodge wrote something on the book. Okay, His commentaries are generally excellent. He's an empiricist. He's changed his mind. But besides that, he is an excellent exegete of the texts. So if you are looking for a commentary, Charles Hodge is an excellent choice. He wrote one on 1 Corinthians, so... I reference it a lot. So here's what he says. Christ died for our sins. That is, as a sacrifice or propitiation for our sins. One of the things that he does excellently is in all of these, when he shows the idea of what was predicted and what was taught, is he gathers together a bunch of the predictions and then gathers together a bunch of the texts that teach on this thing having occurred. And so he just shows you that that's the case. So he, he pulls that material together to show you that Paul is not just speaking vainly. 
So Christ died for our sins. In other words, he died as a sacrifice for our sins. He died as a propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is a $5 word, and it's worth a lot more, so it's a bargain, so buy it. Listen to this word and understand what it means. Propitiation. Propitiation means to turn away disfavor. Right? So you get somebody's frowning at you, just like a big fat frown. Their frown goes away, they turn that frown away, and they come back, and they're smiling. They turn away disfavor, and they replace it with favor. But it's not just done in any way. It's not just a removal of disfavor and a placement of favor. It's doing it by removing the cause of the disfavor. Removing the injustice and providing a cause for favor. So Christ's death turns away the disfavor of God, turns the favor of God toward us by making payment to remove the cause of disfavor and providing righteousness for us so there's a basis for favor. So propitiation is an excellent word that captures what Christ did. Propitiation. Now, it's according to the Scriptures. That is, the fact that the Messiah was to die as a propitiation for sin had been revealed in the Old Testament. The New Testament constantly teaches that Christ's death as an atoning sacrifice was predicted by the Law and the Prophets. My dot, dot, dot there is me eliminating tons of fantastic stuff that Charles Hodge says showing us all the places where that happens. Paul and all other faithful ministers of the gospel, therefore, teach that atonement for sin by the death of Christ is the great doctrine of the whole word of God. He is not overemphasizing. He is rightly assessing. The propitiation by the work of Christ is the great doctrine of the whole word of God. Now, the Shorter Catechism does some, some things to, to emphasize this. Question 20 says, Did God leave all mankind to perish in a state of sin and misery? Right? So after the fall, we're sinful, we're miserable. Did God leave everybody to perish in that sin and misery? Answer, God, having out of His mere good pleasure from all eternity, elected some to everlasting life, did enter into a covenant of grace. A covenant of grace. A, a covenant, an oath to save his people. To deliver them out of the estate of sin and misery. And to bring them into an estate of salvation by what? A redeemer. What does a redeemer do? He redeems. What does it mean to redeem? It means to buy. So what does he do? He buys off the judge? No, he pays our penalty. He pays our penalty. It's not just a bribe. It's a payment to satisfy the just demands of the law. He redeems. He buys. He pays off the debt. Question 25. How does Christ execute the office of a priest? So when you look at his work as a redeemer... He redeems us as the mediator, as the Christ. He's prophet, priest, king. So let's zoom in on the work of the priesthood because the priesthood is where this great exchange happens. 
Question 25. Christ executes the office of a priest in his once offering up of himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God. So the satisfying of divine justice is removing the cause of offense. The reconciliation is getting his favor, losing his disfavor because of that work. And in making continual intercession for us. So now he prays for us. He intercedes for us. So this offering up of himself, this sacrifice to satisfy divine justice, happened once. And we read that today in Hebrews chapter 10. In the morning worship. Page 4. Like this, I managed to get like a verse per page. So I could explain it. I just wanted to make it easy for you. Verse 4. And that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. There's that little phrase again, according to the Scriptures. What does that mean? It was predicted, it was explained, and, sorry, it was predicted, it was taught, and it was explained in the Scriptures. Now, so here is the second doctrine. First, the first doctrine we have is the doctrine of Christ's death and what it did. The second doctrine that we're given here that's listed is the burial of Christ. Christ's burial serves as a humiliation of Christ in his body, being a marker of his death and being under the power of death for three days. However, it is also a part of his exaltation because his spirit went to paradise immediately. And his body was buried in an honorable place. So we think about those two things. The Shorter Catechism talks about the humiliation and exaltation of Christ. And here's what it says about his humiliation. This is his being brought low externally. Right? He, he stoops. He bends down. He, he goes low in order that he would be exalted. Christ's humiliation consists in his being born. Right? Even being born. Right? He's God. Even being born. He's God being born in a human nature, united to a human nature, is an act of humility. It is an act of humiliation. It is an act whereby he is able to be mocked, only for a time, as though he were less than he is. Christ's humiliation consists in his being born. And not only that, he wasn't even, he wasn't even born into a Trump family. Right? He is born in a low condition. Made under the law. He's the law maker. He's eternal. He's above the law. And he puts himself in his human nature under the law. He has to obey himself. And so, he also has to obey the Father. Undergoing the miseries of this life. The, the miseries of this life, as we read through the rest of the book of John, so much of the miseries of this life our own sin. He doesn't have that. He doesn't have his own sin. But there's still all this suffering, all this strife, all this toil. There he is, the breaking down of the body. And so he has to go through the miseries of this life. And even believers, their evil must have been suffocating to him. Their unbelief. 
teaching the same thing over and over and over clearly with rhetorical paradoxes. Like, he was the best teacher to ever walk the planet, and people did not get what he said, which is very encouraging to me. And so that idea that he is trying so hard, so well, and there's this like swimming through jello. He's just trying to get through in his human nature. He is teaching, 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 and he's surrounded by unbelief. And there's occasional sparks of the work of the Holy Spirit with some Gentile, like a centurion, coming and saying, Lord, I understand how authority works. You know, just say the word. I'm sure it'll happen over there. And he goes, mind-blown emoji. He's like, wow, somebody who gets something. Those little acts of relief, the fact that he is so blown away by that should give you a sense of the suffering that Christ goes through being suffocated by unbelief all around him. We walk through the world and we see wickedness. We become more and more aware of it. Our eyes are opened. The law helps us to see evil more and more. You see your past sins. You see the evil that's around you. And as you see it, you begin to sometimes feel vexed by it. How vexed was Christ's righteous soul at the wickedness all around him? Not just by the world, not just by the unbelieving people who were members of the church, but even by his own disciples. He underwent the miseries of this life. The wrath of God and the cursed death of the cross. Right, We talked about this earlier on. When he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, he sweats blood. Right? He, he's undergoing curse, the things that are due for those who are under the wrath of God. And he's going through that throughout his life. And he's, he's dealing with curse, dealing with curse, dealing with curse. And then he gets to this time where there's this pouring out, where the cup of the wrath of God is given to him in this maximal form. He's sweating blood. He goes to the cursed death of the cross. And when he's there, when he's on the cross, right? we're told that there's, that there's curse for those who are hung on a tree. That curse... The manifestation of curse, the pain, the anguish, the suffering. He was buried. His body was broken. He died. And his spirit was separated from his body. And that emblem of the victory of death over Christ lasted for three days. His body was there, broken in the tomb. He continued under the power of death for a time. It does not stop there. The third doctrine, we're told, is that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. The burial and resurrection of Christ were predicted, taught, and explained in meaning, in the scriptures. Charles Hodge says, two things are taught in this, as in the preceding verse. First, the truth of the facts referred to, and second, that those facts had been predicted. 
The prophetic scriptures, however, are full of this doctrine. The dot, dot, dot again is me erasing like a page of him just giving you proofs. Okay. The prophetic scriptures, however, are full of this doctrine. On the one hand, they predict the sufferings and death of the Messiah. On the other, his universal and perpetual dominion. His universal and perpetual dominion. It is only on the assumption that he was to rise from the dead that these two sorts of predictions can be reconciled. It is only on the assumption that he was to rise from the dead that these two sorts of predictions can be reconciled. So think about that. The sufferings and the death of the Messiah are predicted all over the scriptures. The universal and perpetual dominion of Messiah are predicted all over the scriptures. So Hodge's point there, in order for those both to be true, there must be a resurrection. Question 28. Wherein consists Christ's exaltation? Christ's exaltation, his being raised, consists in his rising again, literally, from the dead on the third day. In ascending up into heaven, literally raised. In sitting at the right hand of God the Father. And in coming to judge the world at the last day. His rising again from the dead sets off from that point there is this proclaimed victory over the grave. And in that proclaimed victory over the grave, his risen body is a marker of the conquest over death that will come in the general resurrection. His ascension is a marker of his millennial reign. His sitting at the right hand is his reign. And he will come to judge the quick and the dead. Verse 5. We get into verse 5, and all of a sudden it feels like an anticlimax. Cephas, isn't that just the less awesome name for Peter? Why do we care about this? And then the 12, does that include Judas? And then you get into lists of other things that we are less familiar with. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once. Who are these people? Of whom the greater part remained to the present. Well, obviously not now. Maybe at the time you were writing Paul. But some have fallen asleep. And euphemism for dying. After that, he was seen by James. Which James is this? Then by all the apostles. Wait, how are they different from the twelve? Then last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. Aren't you an apostle? For I am the least of the apostles. You seem to be. Who am not worthy to be called an apostle. Because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. It kind of feels like he's starting out with the gospel and then meanders off into personal soliloquy about what he's feeling about life and the people he knows. So this is why people don't like to spend the time on this text. They, They kind of go, this list of stuff does not seem so important. This does not seem like all that big of a deal. And grammatically, you can't cut it off earlier on than that. So my goal is for you to see this for what it is. 
My goal is to unveil for you the glory of this text and for you to see it as valuable and worthy of your meditation. Verse 5. Christ was seen by Cephas and then by the twelve. The resurrected Christ was seen by the twelve apostles, first of all by Peter and then by the twelve. Remember, seeing the resurrected Christ is one of the credentials of an apostle. This is very important. It makes them eyewitnesses from an evidentiary perspective, and it makes them fulfill the requirements for the posting, the job. This serves the purpose of acknowledging the authority of the apostles and of encouraging the unity of the church in accepting the scriptures of the New Testament from the hand of the apostles. The unity of the twelve is maintained in the unity of the seventy, and that includes Paul. If you don't know what I mean by that, I'm going to stretch it out. And I want you to get this. I want you to see this. The twelve, when we talk about the twelve apostles, that includes Cephas or Peter. Peter is particularly prominent as an apostle. He is prominent in the Gospels and he is prominent in Acts. In the beginning of the book of Acts, Peter is talked about more than any other of the persons who are continuing in the early church until you get to Paul. And then Paul takes over. Paul is by far the most dominant in the second half of the book. So he's seen first by Peter, then by all the twelve. The twelve is not including Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot had already hung himself. So who's the twelve? Some places you'll see reference to the eleven. These are the Judas is dead. They haven't filled the spot. What we have in Acts chapter one is Matthias is found to be a person who is fit to take the place of Judas. My uh, typo there says palace. I don't think Judas had a palace. If he did, he could have taken that too. The twelve includes Matthias, who took the place of Judas. This opened up one of the seats of the 70 apostles to the nations. So Matthias was a guy who was fit to be an apostle. He's one of the 70. He met all the qualifications of somebody to be one of the 12 because we're told he was with Jesus since the baptism of John and he witnessed the resurrection. Those were the two qualifications they were looking for in terms of people to fill the spot of Judas. It's prophesied that Judas would betray Christ that he would die, and that his office would be filled by another. And so Acts chapter 1 goes through that. And Matthias replaces him and fills the office. Matthias was one of the 70. The 70 are 70 apostles to the 70 nations of the Gentiles. The table of nations in the book of Genesis gives us 70 nations. You have 12 apostles to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. And you have 70 apostles to go to the 70 nations. Matthias was one of those apostles. He is put into the 12. There is an opening in the 70. And that is the position that Paul fills. Now Paul would later be given the seat of apostleship to the nations. In Acts 9, he sees the resurrected Christ as one born out of due time. 
and he was not taught by Christ since John the Baptist. So what happens? Well, in Galatians we're told that Jesus just does personal tutoring for 14 years in Arabia. No big deal. So the Apostle Paul receives a lot of personal instruction from the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is the last one to see the resurrected Christ. Which means anybody claiming to see the resurrected Christ is a liar or delusional. Or it's a demon aping Christ. Do you see how these things are starting to have some significant doctrinal weight and are worthy for you to meditate upon? He was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. Verse 6, After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. This indicates for us that the witnesses lived for a while, that those witnesses were concentrated in a place so that there was possible for them to be cross-examined, for them to be argued with, for people who were publishing the Gospels and putting them out to have contradiction arise. Some of them had already died, but not all of them had died. There's a dying out gradually, so that the witness of them is dying out gradually. So doctrine four is the resurrected Christ was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained decades after, during the writing and propagation of the new covenant, but some had fallen asleep. This supports the church as a whole being a witness to the world and provides a large number of people who claim to have all seen the same thing in the same place at the same time. Now, I think this is the event where you have the 120 in the beginning of Acts gathered together. The 120 brethren are, I believe, either 120 officers or 120 heads of house. It would certainly include the 70 and the 12. But the count of 500 may include women and children. Or 120 might only include officers, and therefore there might be 500 heads of house. But so the Acts 1 event with the 120 who are gathered together is what I believe this is referring to. So after that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. Now, Verse 7. And that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. So being seen by James, this is different from James, who's one of the twelve. This is a different James. This is James, the brother of Jesus. James, who moderated the Jerusalem assembly. He is not one of the apostles. He's not one of the seventy. So it lists him with them. So why? Because with Cephas, it's like, hey, here's Peter. He's the most prominent of the twelve. Now we get James and the seventy. How does that fit together? Because the seventy were with Jesus, and they helped to preach, going out by twos to all of Israel. James did not believe. We're told that. We're told that he didn't believe until after Jesus died. So James is listed here because... One, he's a prophetic office, and two, he's the moderator of the Council of Jerusalem. You look what happens at Jerusalem. James is the one who takes in the motions. James is the one who's referring to them. He's ordering the language, and he deals with the final motion and is the one who's engaged with the conclusion of the debate. 
So he's ordering the discussion. So after that, he was seen by James and then by all the apostles. Right? The fifth doctrine here is that the resurrected Christ was seen by his brother James and then by all of the 70 apostles. Now, this points to the idea that it is not just a Jewish council of 12 that is the highest, but the 70 also not only points to the table of the 70 nations, but the idea of the highest court being the 70, the church court, and James as the moderator of that court is a universal court that is not just Jews. This is the doctrine of the Catholic Church. This is the doctrine of the universal, not a single nation, but the universal church and its government. And so you have this idea of the need for general assemblies and and moderators and the idea of the nations being in it, all captured there in verse 7. Verse 8. Then last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. We are freed from the new apostolic reformation and the new new apostolic reformation and the apostles united for tongue speaking and all the other things. We are freed from all of these guys, all of these charlatans. We get the blessing of Zechariah 13. Somebody gets up and says, I'm a prophet. We get to say you're a liar. Very easy. Very easy. No new apostles, no new prophets. Very easy. One of the blessings of the new covenant era. Last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. Christ is viewed as the final prophet. The apostles are his apostles. They carry his message. And when the apostolic ministry is done, and when Jerusalem is destroyed, there is a close of special revelation. So doctrine six is the resurrection. The resurrected Christ was seen last of all by Paul, so there's no new people to see the resurrected Christ. Thus, there's no additional people that can be qualified to become apostles after Paul. He is like one who was born out of due time. It's a special act that's distinctive. It's meant to be sort of this period at the end of the sentence. It is late compared to the other witnesses and thus helping to show the ending of the process of making new apostles. Christ gives the full revelation and it's finished to the apostles as... His apostles are His apostles, not the apostles of the Father. Christ is the apostle of the Father. The apostles are the apostles of Christ. They are His messengers. When the apostles are finished, the scriptures are finished. Paul is the last of the apostles. Verse 9. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Okay, so this doctrine teaches us that there is a gradation of sins, that the gradation of sins, here's the good news about really being a bad sinner. God uses horrific sins for your blessing. God uses your horrific sins for your blessing. The cause of guilt, the self-awareness of sin, and the differing degrees of objective grievousness of sin, these things are used to cause us to recognize the glory of the Savior, the glory of the grace that we have received. And so, 
What does Jesus say about they who have forgiven much? They love much. So, Shorter Catechism teaches us that sins are not equally heinous, but it teaches us also that every sin deserves the wrath and curse of God in this life and that to come. Page 7, verse 10. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. So here's the eighth doctrine. The eighth doctrine is that God's grace effectually calls us and God's grace sanctifies us and gifts us and causes us to be useful. So, effectual calling I have laid out there for you in sanctification. His grace toward me. Remember, grace is His attitude. It's an attitude in the mind of God. Grace is love that is not earned. And in fact, we earn the opposite. Grace is God's love toward us when we deserve His hatred. So God's grace is never in vain because He always does everything He wants to do. Do you feel like you have been saved in vain? God's grace is not in vain. Use what God has given to you well. Be motivated out of gratitude. So here's the effect. Page 8. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. God's going to cause you to bear fruit. And your guilt is used to increase... Your guilt is used to increase your gratitude. As you are aware of your guilt... It helps you, when you study the law, you see more and more your guilt. That's the special work of the law. The special work of the gospel is to help you to see the grace of God. And your gratitude manifests itself in, you see the prophetic promises about what God is going to do, and you have hope to do it. And you apply the law to do it. The guilt of God brought on by studying the law shows you that you need grace. The grace of God revealed in the gospel helps you to be grateful. And then out of gratitude, you can look at the goal with hope that it will be done, and you apply the law to do it. Verse 11. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. This one kind of feels like there's nothing there. But when you break it down, there's three doctrines trapped in here. What are these doctrines? Whether I or they, whether I or the other apostles, that teaches the unity and holiness of the church. The whole church was teaching the same thing, whether I or they. Furthermore, they are focused on the same goal, teaching the same thing to the church, to fill the earth with the knowledge of God. Doctrine two, so we preach. And so whether it was I or they, so we preach. The apostolic deposit is being given to the church. And so you believed. Here's the doctrine of the Catholic acceptance of the Scripture. So here we have one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. And so these things are taught here in this last little appended sentence. Go to page 9. 
1 Corinthians 1 to 11 is often compared to the old Roman symbol or the Apostles' Creed. I have them both laid out for you. One of the frustrating things that has happened is the name for the Apostles' Creed is tied up in superstition, and its use by Rome has also been tied up in superstition. Something that's funny is that Rome was known, the the church at Rome, before it had the papal dominion formed and became apostate, was known as a bastion of orthodoxy. And the Roman symbol, which is an older version of the Apostles' Creed, which was used in Rome, and which there is evidence for in the 2nd century A.D., has, is missing the one line that is most abused, which is, he descended into hell. doesn't have that. Furthermore, the Apostles' Creed, which is written in Greek, does not say he descended into hell. It says he descended into Hades. The translation, he descended into hell, is awful. Okay, so I want to walk you through this just a little bit more, but I want to help you to understand the effort to have an Apostles' Creed or to have the old Roman symbol is an effort to have a short way of going through the gospel with people. For us, what we have, the useful tool that we have for that is the shorter catechism, questions 1 through 38. That's what we have for that. If you want a Bible text, take 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. Remember how to explain the verses. You can unpack them. The use of the Apostles' Creed, or the old Roman symbol, was to take on that role and to be used as a catechetical set of things. It didn't explain everything, but the idea was a catechist, a somebody going through the, that, that, that creed, would tell somebody the meaning. They would be reminded with bullet points of things to explain. That was the use for it. And what you find is around the 300s, we can find documents where people are already writing books explaining it. So they're kind of like trying to get catechist instruction manuals about how to explain the points. And so they're turning it into more of a full explanation. So you find some of those in the 300s. So uh, Logos.com has an article on this, on the history of it. I tried to capture the meat of it for you in this little paragraph here. So you can go back and read that for yourself if you're interested and some of the history of it. Um, the old Roman symbol. It has three major sections talking about the work of the Father, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, and it has things that are sort of organized under them. And when you look at the Apostles' Creed on page 10, you can see the same sort of organization. The Father, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit. And so you'll find the same articles, but you will find, again, that there's a difference it's a small difference. So what I want to do is look at the Apostles' Creed with you and talk about how it is properly usable and how it has been abused. And so the Apostles' Creed is often compared to this 1 Corinthians 15 text. And it's important for you to know how to deal with the Apostles' Creed because of the fact that it is going to be so often mentioned by people who are raised in Roman Catholicism or in Eastern Orthodoxy. Now, The Apostles' Creed says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. So there's a very short statement there 
about God the Father, that He's Almighty and that He's the Creator. Very little information given about Him. Nothing problematic there, but very little given. What is said, as you go through the Apostles' Creed, in terms of the different chunks, the claim is that the Apostles' Creed, what you find in some of the, um, the human traditions that get made up, is essentially that the Apostles' Creed is written by the Twelve Apostles when they're in Jerusalem, right after Pentecost, and they all had a piece of paper in front of them, and each one of the Twelve Apostles wrote one part. There's nothing about that in Scripture. And that tradition is not written down anywhere or found anywhere until the 300s. And further, when we hear that, it is in Latin, across the Mediterranean. Okay, so that is, that is where we find the origin of that tradition. It is not a scripture tradition. So the Apostles' Creed was not written by the Apostles. It was not written by a council. It was not adopted by a council. You will often hear it listed as an ecumenical creed. It was not adopted by a general assembly of the church. It was not written by a General Assembly of the Church. It is not a confessional document written by a synod of the Church. It was used historically to catechize people. But that is all. And furthermore, you find different versions of it, both in Greek and Latin, and the older one is the old Roman symbol. So that right there is an important historical reality. Next, I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. Great, no problem. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. Great, no problem. And born of the Virgin Mary. Fantastic. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. Yes. Was crucified, died, and was buried. Yes. He descended to, and normally you will see there, hell. That is the English translation, and that's terrible. It's a terrible translation. The Greek versions of the Apostles' Creed say Hades. It's very important that it say Hades. He descended to the dead. He descended to the grave. He did not go to hell. What did he say to the thief next to him on the cross next to him? He said, I will see you today in hell. Did he say that? That wouldn't have been a very comforting thing. I'll see you in hell. Right? That's not what he said to the guy. He said, I will see you in paradise. This day. Today. Very different. He descended to Hades. He went to the place of the dead. He went to Abraham's bosom. He went to paradise. He did not go to hell. There is a whole tradition built around the idea of him going to hell of him pulling up believers who were in hell and he's taking them out of hell because they're Old Testament saints. That is false. They were in Abraham's bosom. They were already there. They said, welcome, when Jesus got there and the thief got there. They were already there. They weren't waiting in hell. Furthermore, there is no purgatory. There is no limbo. Those are inventions. He did not pull anybody out of those. The people that were saved were already in paradise based upon the fact that God knew He was going to send Christ. He was the Lamb that was slain before the foundations of the earth. They were there 
based upon the fact that God knew that the debt would be paid. He descended to Hades. He did not descend to hell. On the third day, he rose again. Now, the Heidelberg Catechism and many Reformed authors have tried to save the interpretation of him going to hell. And so when you read the Heidelberg Catechism, what it says, it's like, well, he descended into hell means he suffered the curse while he was on the cross. Well, okay, why does it say he was crucified, died, and was buried, and then talk about the suffering on the cross? Nice try. Orthodox, not, not, not unorthodox, but plainly not what the Apostles' Creed is talking about. So, the Westminster Standards interpret this as Hades. On the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven. Great. And is seated at the right hand of the Father. Fantastic. He will come again to judge the, judge the living and the dead. Normally you'll hear the quick and the dead. No slow people. If you're slow, you can avoid judgment. Right, so it's the quick referring to those who are living as opposed to the dead. So he's going to resurrect people in order to judge them, whether they are currently dead or currently alive when he comes. He's going to have the last judgment. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Great. Notice it doesn't teach that he is God there. It should. That would be a helpful thing to say there. It's okay. So I believe in the Holy Spirit. Typically, then you have this list of work. The Holy Catholic Church. The Church is holy. Great. It's distinct from the world. It's Catholic. It's universal. Normally... Roman Catholics will pick that up and they say, see, believing in the Holy Catholic Church is necessary, which means you need to believe in the Roman Catholic Church. No, the word Catholic does not mean Romanist. Right? The assertion that Catholic simply means Romanist is silly. The word Catholic means universal. Now notice this contradiction. Roman, universal. Rome is a particular location. Universal is throughout the world. The word Catholic is in distinction against a temple stuck in Jerusalem. Right? The idea that there was a temple stuck in Jerusalem is replaced with the worldwide church. As opposed to a national Jewish church, it's a worldwide church. Rome is trying to go back to a centralized, distinctive place. So there is a going back. It's a type of Judaizing. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church. It's a church that's distinct from the world and it's worldwide. It's the people who are called together, the ecclesia, the communion of the saints. We are given gifts to use them with each other. The forgiveness of sins, that's by the death of Christ, by grace through faith. The resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. So all those things, the things that get most twisted is the word Catholic Church, the word hell. This is a fine tool. And many of the lines you can just find straight out of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. It's fine. But you know what's a lot more useful if you're trying to catechize somebody in the faith? The Westminster Shorter Catechism, questions 1 through 38. It will help them to have a much better understanding than if they just read this. Otherwise, you just have to explain it to them over and over and over again. That's fine. You have to keep explaining stuff. And there's no problem with the Apostles' Creed except for its misinterpretation. So, I hope you can see the historical relationship to the old Roman symbol and the Apostles' Creed. I hope you can see 
the purpose of those, how 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 to 11 is a Holy Spirit inspired capturing of the gospel, and how we can find all the doctrines that we want to teach, they are captured in 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 to 11, including the work of the Holy Spirit in the church, and the fact that Christ was sent. But we can also deal with the shorter catechism having the Trinity laid out, the Incarnation laid out, the Gospel laid out. It is a useful tool. So comments, questions, objections? We're having gone through 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 to 11.